Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. You've got a history sibling pairing today. Zach here with history little sis, Beth. Big sis Alex is off doing things with forts in the Thames that all look very Star Warsy. Uh, more on that another time. You're right, sis. How are you doing? And I'm good. I'm all good. Yeah. Um, we we often use this word excited quite a lot on this podcast, but mm-hmm. why is this one going to blow our minds? And I really I don't say that lightly. It is yeah. going to blow our minds. It really is because it's absolutely bonkers story and i know we do some crazy stuff on our down the pub sessions and we have some really unique podcasts but this one definitely is a treat for our listeners um we're joined by james travers um james is a specialist in finding hidden histories within the records at the national archives at kew where he is the cultural property manager He's also an author of a number of books, including Gunpowder, The Players Behind the Plot, and James I, The Mask of Monarchy. So, James, welcome to History Hack. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So, I'll get us started with our first question. Obviously, you work at the National Archives at Kew, and before we talk about your book, uh, The Adventures of Queen's Caroline's Ghost, I want to talk about you and your role as itself. So, can you give Alice, there's a sense of what you actually do at the National Archives. Well, I'm cultural property manager, which means I'm the sort of government's expert on the commercial market in manuscripts. And I give advice to government, to the archive sector and to funding bodies on that market at that point where manuscripts move 
from private ownership to public. So there's two very separate sorts of satisfaction about it. One is the sort of immediate thing around an auction where you see that something that could be dispersed or exported moves into an institution which is going to look after it. Mm. And then there's a much more long-term thing because we have this idea in archives of permanent preservation mm. that they're actually going to look after it forever. There isn't a lot of forever in the modern economy, but archivists mm. deal in it all the time. So you've got that immediate um, satisfaction, but then the sort of very long-term one of thinking that's now there for people to look at and to be preserved for as long as we possibly can. Yeah. It is incredible work. Um, and it's it's worth just kind of explaining to folks that, you know, quite often what you will find in cases is, so these these items go up for auction, right? A collection will be rediscovered. Perhaps it's it's belonged to um, somebody who's who's recently deceased. And so these materials just get kind of dumped on the auction market. And you've got these huge collections of papers that can be incredibly valuable to researchers in terms of unlocking the past. And then because it's an auction, it's a case of who's the highest bidder and what you find. And I have friends and colleagues who've had these frustrations. They go away and you know work out what can they claw together as a museum to try and you know curate this stuff and look after it properly. And then in comes some billionaire who just goes, mm, that's vaguely um, interesting. I'd quite like to own that. And they just scoop it up because they can just keep upping the price and running the bid higher and it disappears and it just sits, you know, with the best will in the world. Sure, they might treasure it, but they're not, you know, trained in the art of preserving these materials. And so it's a hugely important task that you guys do. And it's also that question of research access, even, you know, because there is an argument that says a private owner of um, a manuscript will always look after it as best they can, you know, because they want to preserve its value. But it's very difficult to provide that access, even if, and there are some, as you say, that don't. So. Mm. And just for, because obviously I know I've been to the archives on a few occasions, and I know that Zach has as well for our own periods of history that we're interested in. But for someone who maybe doesn't know how they can get into the archives and would love to do some research on a family member that they know of or some local history maybe or census related work, how do, would someone go about accessing that material at the archives? Because it is open to everyone, isn't it? You don't have to be a historian. You can be just a Joe Blogs off the street. Yeah. To research in person, you need a reader's ticket. So, um, but that's just a question of registering. But there's an awful lot now available online through various portals and our own website. So you can do a great deal from the comfort of your armchair. Mm. And it's worth saying to folks, um, just Google, you know, TNA, uh, which is the, the abbreviation everyone uses for the National Archives. They have a catalogue called Discovery. Any digitized material you can find through that. Obviously, you need to kind of be looking for certain search terms. There are guides to particular sections of papers, so war office papers, um, foreign office papers, add Commonwealth office, and so on and so forth. It's not just governmental stuff. There's a huge wealth of material there. And as Beth says, you do not need to be an expert. Any fool could, I mean, look, if I can get involved in, in historical research, then, then any fool can get involved because uh, I am up there amongst the biggest of the fools. 
But let's talk about your book, because that's that's what we're here to do. And when I was discussing this with Beth before we came on air, my words were, this is just mental. It's one of those stories you wouldn't believe it. And initially, I'll be honest, I didn't believe it until I started kind of checking up on what you were saying and, you know, your background and start to go, okay, no, this guy isn't just kind of playing fast and loose and making up some stuff. Um, he's got a reputation behind him, which means he won't have just kind of pretended that all of this stuff is at TNA and, and hopes that nobody's gone looking for it. So let's talk about that process. You know, how did you end up finding the documents behind this story? Because you don't just walk into uh, TNA and ask the person on the front desk, yeah, can I have some stuff that nobody's seen before? So talk us through it. Well, it starts, I talked about um, institutions preserving things forever. Well, one of the things that the National Archives is preserving forever is some is possibly the last thing you would expect to find in the repository of central government and the law courts. It's a three-volume Regency Gothic novel about the um, love lives, particularly of the uh, daughters of George III, but in fact of the whole family, including the king himself. Um, I have to be honest and say that a colleague of mine pointed it out to me, but because she knew that I had a sort of eye for literary things, because my background is in English literature as well as in history. Um, but then when you start looking, and when you, when you search for the author, Thomas Ashe, suddenly all this stuff appears. Um, we've got oodles of material in the uh, Treasury Solicitor's Papers, not just the novel itself, but all the papers around trying to deal with him. Because at this time, there is a whole industry in government of trying to promote loyal literature and trying to suppress seditious literature through um, the Privy Purse and the uh, Treasury Solicitor. So there's oodles of material there. There's legal opinion in the Home Office papers about what can we do about this man. And there are all sorts of unexpected things in other places. One of his books, um, The Patriot Princess, is available only in a single manuscript, and that's at the National Library of Scotland. It was sent to Lord Castlereagh. Um, there's an awful lot of discussion about him in uh, the Duke of Wellington's papers at um, Southampton University Library, and there are the other side of um, that correspondence is in the Treasury Solicitor's papers again. So, and, and some of it has come to light really very recently. There's um, Ash's correspondence with Viscount Percival and his agents, which only came into the Bodleian Library in 2008. And if you look very carefully at my footnotes, you'll see there's bits and pieces actually in auction catalogues and in the booksellers catalogues. So as part of our monitoring, we've actually picked up on things which related to this story. So, Set the scene for us, then, James. What what's happening in the court of King George the uh, Third, which then gives rise to this novel being ghost written? Because obviously, that's when this your book is set around, isn't it, George the Third, and all the excitement of that period of time. Mm. The the big central piece of legislation, the thing that um, Thomas Ashe is writing against, 
and the thing that gives his whole career coherence really is something called the Royal Marriages Act, which controlled who members of the royal family could marry. Um, George III had all sorts of trouble with his brothers making what was called misalliances, running off with people. And it was felt that this could precipitate revolution. You've got, you know, it's, and after the French Revolution, this atmosphere of paranoia about what if, what if the monarchy is brought into disrepute, what might happen becomes more and more intense. So Lord North, the prime minister, very tactfully put in, because this seemed on the face of it like a tremendous um, extension of the royal prerogative. There's the king deciding who the royal family can marry and what um, political marriages they can make, you know, what the state can do in a way. But uh, Lord North put in a proviso which said, when you got to 25, if you had the consent of parliament, you could, you could marry who you liked. But that essentially meant, both of those things essentially meant that you could only really marry German Protestants because <laughs> you, you couldn't marry a Catholic, you couldn't marry an ordinary person, even an aristocrat who was English, uh, which meant largely marrying, marrying a first cousin who was probably old and ugly. Um, Ash calls it licensed political rape, which is pretty strong. Um, and there's something in that. So you've got that horrible atmosphere of essentially the daughters of George III being sequestered away at Frogmore. The, uh, the, the title, by the way, is a blackmailer at Frogmore. The, um, the Queen Caroline's Ghost is the, um, the subtitle. Um, they're sequestered away at Frogmore. They can't live with their father because he's going mad periodically, but they can't really go away because he's very protective of them. And, and it's feared that if, even if they make a proper political marriage to a German, if they go away, that will unbalance him further. So you've got essentially the atmosphere of a Gothic novel. You've got sexual frustration, madness, essentially people imprisoned, and these poor daughters who only really are allowed to meet elderly courtiers. There's a lovely um, description which Princess Elizabeth gives of um, one of the, what their evenings are like. Um, is, is, can I read you a little bit of it? If, if that would be all They favour us indeed with their presence for a short time in the evening, but no sooner is the tea equipage removed than they betake themselves to their political disquisitions over the bottle, while we are obliged to have recourse to a game of whist or to pass a considerable part of the night looking at one another in savage silence across a table. While we are pining away in secret desires, our courtiers are busy employed in settling the affairs of the public, while we are meditating the conquest of the heart, they are ruminating the downfall of some popular advocate of a deluded people. You know, <laughs> that's quite nice. Um, and this is the odd thing about Ash, really, that he writes 
beautifully. All this stuff is in the, the context of blackmail, and he's, you know, when he's talked about at all, he, there's a modern critic who calls him a vile insect because he's, um, <laughs> um, you know, in this atmosphere that's very morally um, grey and difficult. But a lot of it sounds very much like things that either Elizabeth actually told him or very similar to things she might have told him um, and, you know, beautifully expressed. There's a thing, um, there's, there's a plea that um, Elizabeth makes against the Royal Marriages Act, which sounds very much like, again, it's, it's only very brief. She says, we were brought up as if God had created us merely for himself and that our only business was to prepare for immediate residence in heaven. One would have thought that we had no blood, no bodies, all the pains being taken with our souls, or that providence had enacted a Salic law and excluded us from every inheritance of the earth. I mean, that's, um, that's a sort of proper feminist plea. Um, um, that's the thing about Ash, all his sources are women. He, um, and I think, you know, whatever you think of him, and other people may take a dimmer view of him than I do, um, he definitely liked women. He definitely liked listening to women. And he found himself in an era where the kind of, you know, these are women at the top of society. They're aristocratic and royal women that he writes about. But they're in a position where they can't really write these things for themselves. And he does it for them. Mm. He has a three-volume courtesan's memoir he writes which has no sexual content in it whatsoever and she is essentially him he's writing so she lives in the places that he lived when he in what he calls his literary prostitution um and it's incredibly sympathetic it's a it's a real um act of transference it, it goes wrong sometimes and he does some very silly things she's always quoting his favorite roman poet horace at funny times, um, which doesn't sound particularly credible, but um, I think he is very comfortable in a woman's skin, in a sense, in that way. Some of the language used is incredible as well, just how scathing yeah. it is. Um, yeah. Let's let's start to to dig a little bit because there's a threat made, isn't there? To and I'm quoting here: "Blow the roof off the nunnery." Why does Caroline threaten to do this? And then more importantly, what makes her want to follow through with it? It's, um, it's all to do with negotiations around her status and her access to her daughter, Charlotte. There is something called the delicate investigation, which is nothing of the sort, where... Caroline's moral conduct is investigated by the government because essentially the marriage has been a disaster between her and her husband, the Prince Regent. And um, she has this up her sleeve as a piece of, you know, she invites confidences and from the sisters and so she has this store of knowledge of their lovers. And um, 
yes, that's 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 the background to the um, to the Claustral Palace itself. Why then, kind of, uh, you know, that that's her grievance. But why then go ahead and and you know act on this? What what is it that makes her decide that enough's enough? You know, she needs to have her her way of. It almost sort of feels like a cathartic vent. You know, why does she need that in her life? I think there's there's two possible uses for the Claustral Palace. It's either for publication to give her view, to give her side of events, and to, as because you know Ash is chosen because he's already written the spirit of the book. So the defence of Caroline's um, conduct in relation to the uh, delicate investigation. Uh, and this, in a sense, is a continuation and a kind of um, an attempt to um, beat down the Royal Marriages Act and ensure that the disastrous marriage she has been through is never inflicted on anybody else. But it's also full of all this salacious revelation, which um, could make... Um, Ash some money either through publication or suppression. In a way, suppression's a better option because there was no copyright in immoral works. So. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's quite difficult to make money through publishing something like the uh, the Claustral Palace, but it was well known that this the you know the, this government industry in um, suppressing and promoting literature would pay out vast sums of money to um, to stop these things coming out. Caroline's obviously picked um, Captain Thomas Ash to do this work for her. Can you just tell us a little bit about? who he was and why he was chosen to write this novel. Well, if we believe um, Ash's memoirs, and um, though he has an amazing reputation for unreliability, quite a lot of what can be verified about what's in it is verifiable and, you know, there's documentary support for. Um, he was part of a little group of Irishmen that she knew at the court of Brunswick before she came to Britain to marry the Prince Regent. 
uh, there was Ash, there was Lord Edward Fitzgerald, and there was a man called Captain Brown, who was supposed to have rescued the standard of Brunswick in a battle against the French and um, won her heart. Now, a bit like finding out about Ash in the National Archives, once you find Captain Brown, he's everywhere. One of the wonderful things the book does is it fills in, you know, those amazing satirical cartoons with all the figures in it. And we recognize the Prince Regent and his latest mistress. And there's the Duke of Wellington. But who are all the other people? Well, one of them very often is Captain Brown. Captain Brown, as I say, he's this um, handsome Irish officer that she meets in Brunswick. And there's a story in Ash's Memoirs and Confessions that he and Lord Edward Fitzgerald have got a plot to um, elope with Caroline from Brunswick and take her to Ireland dressed as a boy. So, yes, the reason why um, Caroline married the Prince Regent in Ash's version in the Memoirs and Confessions is that it was the only way of getting Captain Brown out of prison. And um, Captain Brown keeps appearing in the story later. Um, he's the stranger in the, co in the cottage in um, the delicate investigation. So he's, he's hanging around uh, Caroline even after her marriage. He's in a wonderful um, cartoon called The Coronation of the Empress of the Nairs where again it's enormous numbers of figures in the cartoon and uh, the central figure apart from the regent and his latest mistress is Charlotte, um, Caroline's daughter, um, with a handsome soldier and uh, the British Museum catalogue for this cartoon says uh, I, we think this might be uh, Prince Charles Hesser who was one of um, Charlotte's um, suitors but he's got a comedy Irish accent. I won't try and do it for fear of um, giving deathless offence, but... Um, we have a long history Irish. of uh, annoying the Irish on, uh, on history hacks. I wouldn't <laughs> worry too much, but sorry, to, you carry on. But, um, and it's quite clear that they're not lovers at all. They're, they're holding hands in a very decorous way and smiling at one another. And the implication is the Captain Brown, who will be recognised by everybody looking at that cartoon, is really her Charlotte's father, and he's taking her to her mother. She, he says, sure, and Alta Wales. And then he's, um, he's the one that brings Caroline the news of Charlotte's uh, wedding uh, marriage to um, Prince Leopold. Uh, he, um, she's on her disreputable tour of uh, Europe and the Mediterranean. She's at Malta and uh, Captain Brown turns up and tells her about it. Uh, and then he turns up again in 1820 in a um, cartoon called The Royal Bruiser when Caroline comes back as queen when um, George III dies. And um, 
he's still this sort of perpetually handsome hussar. He's still 25 in the cartoon, even though he was 50 by then. But he's there as a contrast to the Prince Regent, who's um, bloated and terrified. He's sitting next to the um, Duke of Wellington, and they're more scared of Caroline than they are of Napoleon. And um, Captain Brown is there as this kind of perpetual reproach. So there's this little group that she meets in Brunswick and um, and she trusts and uh, and Ash is one of those. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Let's let's talk about um, blackmail, which you know is, is at the heart of all of this, but not just for the royal family, because there is a, a, a suggestion, this staggered me when I read it, that Spencer Percival, who for folks who aren't familiar, was the last PM to be assassinated. He was shot in the lobby of the House of Commons in 1812. There's a suggestion that Percival himself was involved. Talk us through all of that. I mean, Ash refers to his own blackmailing campaign as playing the Percival game. He, you know, he modelled himself on the Prime Minister. Um, there are sort of two views of um, Percival which don't seem to overlap at all. He's this um, pale lawyer, an evangelical committed Christian and family man, you know, with a great deal of um, sort of moral heft. He always seemed to be turning down office in government and, and um, recommending other people other people instead but then there he is as um chancellor and as uh, as prime minister and how has he done it and uh, it's not just ash um william cobbett and other people are convinced that he's gained office through blackmail of the royal family um he uh, i've talked about the delicate investigation the report into the delicate investigation was so um, incendiary and infamous it was just called the book and Ash alleges and gives quite a lot of detail about how Percival circulated copies among the royal family um, and you know the suggestion is that he made demands and that his demands were met the, um, the interesting thing there is that then he goes into government and he doesn't need the book anymore. He's got power. And the last thing he wants is something destabilizing. You know, he's now got the regent, so he doesn't want to destabilize the regent anymore. So he burns the copies that he's printed, the rest of the copies in his garden. And then there's an enormous campaign to try and gather in various stray copies which have gone through the binder and the printer and other people. And uh, Ash claims to have seen the sheets, the proof sheets of this, and to have based his own work on that. 
And um, again, it seems so unlikely, except that there are files and files and files in the Treasury Solicitor's Papers of receipts. Uh, people giving undertakings and saying, well, this is my only copy. I haven't made other copies of it. I won't quote from it. Uh, they were giving between 500 and 700 pounds a copy, which you can probably roughly multiply by 100 uh, to get modern values. Um, they were giving 50 pounds just for bits of a page. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's incredible to us because looked back on with a sort of modern eye, you think, well, you know, the inherent conservatism of the British people, you know, we wouldn't have, if this stuff had come out, we wouldn't have, you know, stormed the Tower of London and uh, we'd just have um, laughed at it. But that was the, uh, the, the sort of level of paranoia, if you like. Is there concern about potential damage to the monarchy here? You know, oh, the, yeah. that... Um, the, I'm particularly thinking that during this period, you've got, for example, the Marianne Clark scandal concerning the, the Duke of York, um, mm. Frederick Duke of York, and the suggestion, which was ultimately found not to be the case, that he was, uh, through his mistress, complicit in uh, the sale of um, commissions in the army. And as commander in chief, that was obviously hugely problematic. Is there this sense that the, the monarchy just doesn't need this at this point in time, particularly given the fact that the authority of kingship has always been something that the British have, have worried about as far back as uh, the English Civil War. And it's been called into question really quite recently with the French Revolution. Is that part of the, the reason for this level of concern here? Yeah, and, and for the tremendous industry in, in suppressing seditious literature. And it's, um, you know, and it's behind the Royal Marriages Act because, um, you know, George III says, well, there were all these, um, these inappropriate marriages at the time of the War of the Roses and that, you know, civil conflict just sort of follows naturally from people making misalliances you know you, you, the one thing follows the other and obviously all of this continues and it, it rumbles on it the cabinet level as well like even wellington has to get involved and is, is even discussing what's been going on happenings with the blackmail and so on what do they do to resolve the whole situation is there anything that they they could have done or that anything they didn't do that they should have done well, by the time you get to um, Wellington's cabinet in 1829-30, we've moved on to a different uh, Thomas Ashe manuscript, and that's Osphere or the Victim of Unnatural Affections. Um, Osphere is just a silly anagram for Sophia. He does silly anagrams for everyone just to, you know, they're absolutely transparent but um, they, they theoretically disguise who he's talking about. So that is Princess Sophia, one of um, George III's daughters. Um, and that manuscript does not survive as far as we know, but we do know an awful lot about it from all the official correspondence, both in the Wellington Papers and at the National Archives. There's a wonderful thing that Wellington says, which is, 
this is an atrocious libel upon the king and the whole royal family, particularly the Princess Sophia and the Duke of Cumberland. So that gives the game away <laughs> as to <laughs> what it's about. Because, um, you know, there, there's there's the allegation of an incestuous relationship there. Uh, they, there's also the thing about him um, murdering his valet. Um, the next question is, what should we do with the book? Shall we send it back to him, leaving him to publish it at his peril, or shall we pay him £100? <laughs> so, um, because what Ash has done is he's written this thing, 300 pages of Royal Octo Octavo um, bound in green Morocco, and sent it to the Duke of Cumberland on approval, um, and said, well, you know, send it back to me or give me the reason why you haven't. And eventually uh, he's met with silence and he comes down to London from where he's been hiding in Carlisle to retrieve his manuscript and confront the Duke on Kew Green. So that's one of the great ironies of the book. The, all the papers are only a stone's throw at the National Archives at Kew from um, where the, his uh, Thomas Ashe's old Bailey trial um, alleged he'd um, attempted to murder the Duke of Cumberland or threatened to. What an incredible story. Um, there's, a, there's a very obvious thing here, which is this thing lands in their lap. Do they know that there are copies? Can they just sort of take it and, and chuck it in the fire? Wellington, you talk about, you know, Wellington being in all of this. Wellington is, is particularly gung-ho with his own reputation when he is uh, threatened with blackmail um, by somebody who he's had an affair with, his, his words are publish and be damned. And yep. the lady in question does publish and in time she is damned. Um, she doesn't do particularly well out of the whole thing. So why, why not just particularly considering what you say about, you know, suppression of um, publications that were considered seditious considering that Cobbett ends up um being imprisoned for libel during the napoleonic wars why not just destroy arrest um and and suppress well it's quite interesting you know what we think does happen to these manuscripts and why you know the claustral palace ends up in the treasury solicitor's library that's how it's stamped so he obviously, I don't know whether he had a sort of collection of um, embarrassing, seditious literature, but he obviously kept it for whatever reason as being sort of entertaining, even though presumably it was dynamite. There's always two voices. There's never a clear idea of what ought to be done. There's always the, you know, the legal voice saying, well, you know, suppressing the manuscript is nothing because he could just write another one. But there's something about the, the gentleman blackmailer. There's to, to the Duke of Cumberland, he's a very dangerous man and who's on a point of honour sent him this thing and that puts him in a very difficult position. What actually happens in the end, of course, is that the, in 1830, it's coinciding with the um, establishment of um, Sir Robert Peel and his police force, the new police. And what they do is essentially treat him, treat Ash as a vagrant. 
you know, they just sort of move him on without him, you know, and he ends up um, going back to Carlisle, that he does come back in 1835 and try and uh, reclaim the manuscript again. Just have visions like there of yeah. um, some yeah. some sort of metropolitan police officer in a Cockney accent, just sort of, yeah. you know, move along, sir. <laughs> move along, sir. <laughs> anyway, I sorry. Like, yeah, I like to think that um, because at one point the manuscript of Osphere or the um, Victim of Unnatural Affections finds its way into something they call the Strong Closet at Downing Street. Um, I like to think there is still a Strong Closet at Downing Street somewhere and that it might still be in it, you know, <laughs> vying for space with all the other things which have been put in there since. In a way. And so obviously he's he's written these these manuscripts and you know he's given all of these secret names and and so on. Uh, what does happen to Ash in the long term after all of these manuscripts have been written and and filtered through? I'm afraid there isn't a long term for for Captain Ash after he comes back in 1835 to try and reclaim the um, manuscript for the last time. He ends up in the House of Correction in the um, in Coldbath Fields, oh. and he sends, as he would, a um, petition to the Home Secretary saying, um, "This is all very well for criminals, but I'm a you know I'm an author and a scholar of forty years standing, and it's I'm I'm and I'm very old, and I'm my war wounds are plaguing me, so it's not a suitable place for me." And uh, he's he was theoretically there for two years for a breach of the peace, mm. um, and he gets out within a month. So this petition obviously worked, and he um, went um, first to Oxford and then to Bath, and died in Bath in uh, December of eighteen thirty-five. So that's quite evocative in a way because you know, as we know from Jane Austen, you know, mm. Bath is that last bastion of that society yeah. that um, Ash thrived in of, um, you know, aristocratic gossip and scandal and, uh, you know, that sort of old fashioned way of life. The, the, the thing that um, Dickens writes about with such um, relish, I have him in my mind as a sort of half an inspiration for a Diken Dickensian character. Mm, definitely. You know, a, a man of a previous age with a, brilliantly loquacious and morally um, kind of yeah. <laughs> questionable, you know, a sort of Mr Jingle. You want to believe him because his stories are so compelling. Yeah, absolutely. This has been absolutely fascinating. James, thank you for, for joining us. So uh, A Blackmailer at Frogmore, The Adventures of Queen Caroline's Ghost is out already. Um, folks will be able to get it from the History Hack bookstore. The link will be in the description. Are you on social media so that people can stay in touch with what you're doing? Um, <laughs> I'm not personally. My wife has been tweeting about it, but um, not me. <laughs> okay, like, well, not to worry. But James, has been a great, great run through. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 